Good morning, good morning. Um, we are glad that you're here. Let's just pray as we kind of settle ourselves into this and, and uh, get ready to hear from the Lord. We, Lord, we just humble ourselves before you. We come to you as the ultimate relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Lord, we want to learn from you this morning. We want to understand, be challenged. Lord, we talk about relationships. Certain things pop in our mind, Lord, certain friends, certain relatives, siblings, parents, children, neighbors, coworkers. Lord, those that we have felt connected with and for some reason there's been a disconnect. For some that we've felt hurt and pain from and yet long for relationship with. For those that we value and appreciate so much, Lord, that word relationship, the interaction of lives together brings up so much in all of us. And so we want to have our ears opened and our hearts open to you and what you would say to us each individually and how we would lean not only towards you, towards each other. And so we trust these moments in time that as we just interact and have conversation that you would move here, that you would do something, that you would begin something new and fresh and making something more beautiful. Lord, we resist the spirit of condemnation that the enemy tries to come with uh, at us in these moments where we feel maybe estranged from somebody and we feel condemnation about that and and it doesn't feel safe, but what do I do about that? And we just push against that. We know that there's no condemnation in you. And so we resist that spirit, but we also open our hearts and we welcome this morning the breath of the Holy Spirit, the conviction in our hearts of something that you want to do to unify your body, to unify, unify your, your people, your families, the body here, the body worldwide. And so we trust these moments that something is up that you want to do in us and through us. So we trust you for that now. In Jesus' name, amen, amen. Well, um, just to start off, I just want to say, I want to challenge you this morning not to neglect your relationships. Um, we almost didn't do this together this morning. Um, Janice has been struggling with pancreatitis for about 15 months, and she had another episode this week, so she's been in the hospital all week. And she just got out late Thursday night and had a procedure that was done a month ago or so that we thought was going to resolve this, and it didn't. And so now this isn't to open and be morbid this morning, um, but it's just to say we just there's no guarantees in life. Uh, now, we have hope, we have great hope that this is going to resolve, that this is, and we recognize this is obviously a process of healing that's happening in her life, and, and we are trusting that this is going to get settled, and uh, believing for that, even though we don't yet experience it. And so we um, see a lot of life ahead. Um, we've been together for 30 years, or 37 years, married, um, known each other for 40 now, we really like each other. We got a good thing going on. Um, we have fun together. We like to be together. We have dreams uh, about the future. We believe that the uh, future has got amazing things in store for us. And, 
And uh, yet there's just no guarantees. And so we see too many times, too many experiences that we have with people that are disconnected from family and friends. And they just are stuck. Oftentimes they're stuck waiting on, well, you know, they really need to say they're sorry. I just, I just can't talk to them anymore until they say they're sorry and realize what they've done wrong. And, and of course, oftentimes the other side's thinking the same thing. And they're stuck, polarized. There's no movement at all. And it goes on. We've seen that go on for months and years and years and sometimes decades. And just thinking, well, maybe one of these days, but we don't do anything about it. Um, We see too many couples that need to really work at moving towards each other, not take the effort to really work at it. Uh, Studies tell us it's pretty amazing that the average is for couples when they start struggling with something and they need help and they know they need help. The average couple waits five to seven years from the time they need help until they get help. So you can imagine what five to seven years in dysfunction and difficulties and when God could be doing something new and fresh in their life. So, so hopefully this morning in this conversation, something's going to nudge us towards... Um, one another towards some relationship in our life to move towards it in a greater way than we have. And so we're going to set the stage just for a few moments, and we're going to take some questions um, to, to look at the Scripture. What does, what does the scriptural story say to us about relationships and about um, the importance of these? And so we're going to look, first of all, we're going to peek in at Jesus' prayer, his famous prayer in John 17. Uh, basically, Jesus is ready to go to the Father. He said, Father, I've done everything. Matter of fact, I love it in the Message Bible. It says, down to the last detail of what you asked me to do. So I'm ready to come. And then he prays for his disciples, and not only the, the, the 12, the 11 that were left, the 12, that all of those were around him at the time. All those were followers. He prayed for them. And then we find him in verse 20 praying for us. I'm praying not only for them, his disciples, but also for those who believe in me because of them and their witness about me. That's us. The goal is for all of them to become one heart and mind, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you. So they might be one heart and mind with us. Then the world might believe that you, in fact, sent me. The same glory you gave me, I gave them. So they'll be as unified and together as we are. I and them and you and me, then they'll be mature in this oneness and give the godless world evidence that you've sent me and loved them in the same way you've loved me. So obviously, this is one of the key uh, mantras of the life of Jesus and his heart that we would be one. And this is more than just our comfort as humans, but something is up here. There's something critical about this. Maybe the most important thing that could possibly happen in the world is that we be unified, that that be the most powerful message. Not do we know all of the right doctrine and theology and the ways on how to um, get somebody through the four spiritual laws, but maybe are we unified and are we operating as one in our relationship. So Paul goes on in his letters to the early church and speaks more about this. If you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, 
Then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interests, but also to the interests of others. Boy, consider others as more important than yourself. Uh, what a challenge. He goes on and talks to another church. Be compl- completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort, every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. And he goes on. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. Is that, do we have another one? That's it. Oh, one more. Okay. Bear with each other and forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. Kind of see a common theme here, don't we? The importance of unity, the importance of connecting with one another. And so um, it comes down to decisions that we're going to make in each of our individual lives. So let's look at some questions. This first question. Uh, We're going to be dealing, I think, with a lot of different dynamics in relationships. And so this first question says, any advice for navigating the relationship changes that come when a couple begins having children? Mm-hmm. Well, if I had my way, I'd probably have pre-baby counseling for people. <laughs> um, <laughs> because your relationship does change dramatically. I think one of the most important things you can do is make sure you have your conflict resolution skills well honed. Um, It's important in all relationships for you to know how to resolve differences. You know, we we talk a lot about marriages need good communication, and absolutely we want good communication. But what we find is sometimes when you have good communication, you just realize you really disagree. It's like I understand you and you understand me, but I think you're wrong. Um, And so especially when you add a child in, you find that there's more things to have conflict over Um, Oftentimes when you have a child, you find some of the things from your family's background that come out. Um, You suddenly are saying things like your mom that you swore you would never say. Um, And you find that it's like, well, this is the right way to do things. This is the way my parents did it. And so this is the right way to do things. And it gives you more areas to have that conflict. And so I really encourage people, you know, this is the time to get those skills really, really well developed so that your child can see unity between the two of you. Um, Children pick up on the spirit of things. And so if there's strife between the two of you, they're going to feel it even if they don't hear you argue. And so learning to resolve that so you can be one in the parenting role. And this is one of the most dramatic um, changes um, in course of a marriage. It is, I, I can't tell you how oftentimes I hear, boy, we were doing pretty good as a couple until our first child came along. Now, they were thrilled with the baby. It's a wonder. It's this phenomenal thing, but it changes radically the interaction that happens. You've heard us talk about this idea that in early courtship and even in early marriage, we have this what we call a face-to-face relationship where we have this opportunity to spend a lot of time focused on each other and we 
kind of nurture each other, and it feels good, and it's strengthened. And then once we get married, and certainly after children, we turn side to side. And now we've got to take care of children and this baby and, and change diapers and, and get up in the middle of the night, and we're trying to decide who's supposed to do that. And, and um, you did it last night, and I'm supposed to do it tonight, and all those kind of things. And it's one of those dramatic switches to side to side. And so the number one thing I would say is don't neglect you. Happy, secure kids come from happy, secure marriages. And so don't neglect your relationship. you got to fight for it. you got to scratch for it. you got to claw for it. To f- not each other. Not, yeah. Yeah, not each other. Um, you you got to fight for these moments of connection, interaction. The time will be less. There's no way around it. Uh, you will spend less time face-to-face but we got to make sure it's potent. you got to make sure it's quality time. Uh, figure out how to not neglect you uh, is going to be absolutely critical. And you've heard us forever talk about the importance of date night and having that quality time together. I tell couples the first week of a baby's life, you need to go on a date. I mean, that may mean if you're nursing the baby, you leave the baby with grandma for an hour, and the two of you go out to dinner or you have time alone. But it's keeping this relationship good Because kids do, as Brent said, happy, secure kids come from happy, secure marriages. And so it's it's making sure we are connecting, that we don't lose that boyfriend-girlfriend thing. Because nobody wants to wake up and go, oh, we're that old married couple. We all want to be boyfriend-girlfriend the rest of our lives. But you've got to do boyfriend-girlfriend things in order to keep that and make it a priority. Yes, absolutely. We could talk about this forever. So Uh, This is a good follow-up question. So what do you say to parents about how to make the transition from parenting kids to parenting adults? Mm -hmm. And what would you say to the adult children as well? I would say for parents, um, you know, we always have to keep in mind the goal of parenting is to raise healthy, secure, uh, self-functioning adults. I mean, that's what we want. Our goal is for them to function on their own and to move out there and to have their own life. Some of you are going, yes, but they keep moving back. Um, and, and so that means it's a process of letting go, and that's a process of letting them make some of their own mistakes. And I always tell people it's, it's best to let them make mistakes in grade school and not budget their time well and mess up on the science fair project than to wait until they're in college. But if you haven't done it then, there's a certain point where you have to go, you know what, I don't approve of what they're doing, but I have to allow them to be adults and respect them for that. And even if I think it's stupid for them to buy this house or it's, they shouldn't be doing this, I've given them my opinion, and I need to let them go. And then on the other hand, and, and then in another way, I, we also have to respect their life as adults in terms of interacting with them. You know, if you go on family vacation, it's wonderful. But if they want to do something different, they are adults. They're no longer your fifth grader. And so it's okay to allow them to have their own choices and to do some things, even if you're not comfortable with it. As our kids get older, our role is to step back more and more and to be an advisor rather than to be the teacher or the controller. Yeah, I think that's so important. We're, we're cheerleaders. We stand alongside and encourage them. We are not parental anymore in that sense. We're not the teacher. We're not the guide any longer. Uh, we don't tell them what to do or even give them suggestions unless they ask. And That's that kind looks of the magic. Like, 
mom and dad, what should I do? Yeah. That's kind of how you know when they go, I want your advice, or what should I do? That's how you know they want your advice. Yeah. And, there, and there's, a, there's a simple communication tool that, that we oftentimes refer to in this point that is so critical. Of course, we can. this affects marriages. This affects even dealing with younger children, but certainly with adult children. There's this concept that each of us have a parent part of our personality. I wish I had a whiteboard right now. A parent part of our personality, an adult part of our personality, and a child part of our personality. The parent part of us is the judge, the, the critic. Uh, the adult part of us is the logical reasoning part of us. And the child is either is either compliant or rebellious. So when we're talking to another person, we're always talking from one of those three to one of those three in the other person, whether they're five or 50. They have a parent, an adult, and a child. Now, when we're talking to a five-year-old, we oftentimes talk from that parental. Now, go in and brush your teeth, Johnny. That's If you're talking from your parent, that critiquer, that judge, that that um, um, kind of tell, tell them what to do. That's okay with a five-year-old. You know, go in and brush your teeth, Johnny. I already have, Daddy. No, you haven't. You haven't even been close to the bathroom. Now, march in there and brush your teeth, young man. That's a reasonable thing to do because we're expecting compliance. Now, if you talk to your 15-year-old that way, go in here and do that, and you did that wrong, and if you don't learn how to study, you're going to fail in college, and that's the main part of communication that you have with a 15-year-old, you're going to start pricking rebellion, and you're either going to get fight or flight from them. Either they're going to shut down and run away from you, or they're going to come back. Well, Susie's, they're going to slip into their parent, and they're going to try to parent you. Well, Susie's parents let them do this. You guys are so mean, and you're too strict. Well, most parents don't respond to that as going, oh, you're right. We're just too strict. I don't know what we're thinking. That's going to prick rebellion in you and go, don't you talk to me that way, young lady. Um, we're gonna, you know, we have these two people trying to parent each other. It's a mess. And so many parents try to deal with their adult children that way. They keep trying to tell them what they're doing wrong and what, what they need to do right. And they're, they're going to pull away from you. And they're going to they're gonna rebel. They're going to basically want to see you maybe on Thanksgiving. Uh, a lot of rebellion comes because of the parents. It really is not about the child. And so, so parents, we've got to learn how to release them and help them become their own people. Certainly be around and encourage them and speak life to them and be there when they need help. Uh, encourage them, but they are now adults. You want to talk about what are the... Well, let me just say this. We have to, from the time they start growing up, and I'd say even in grade school this begins, we have to keep in mind it is their life and not mine. And that's hard. When you're used to having us all in together as this little nest, it's like, okay, I have to release them to have their life and to make their mistakes and to do what they feel like they're supposed to do. I can pray for them. I can be there if they want advice, but it's their life and not mine. That also keeps you from doing the fifth grade science fair project because it's like, it's their science fair project, not mine. And then if they mess up, we can have compassion, but we don't have to rescue them. It's not good for them. And, and then with adult children, you know, I'd say one of the hardest things as you become an adult is really setting appropriate boundaries with families. Some families do great at it, and it's like, you know, that's you and this is us, and if you want to do something different, that's fine. Sometimes parents aren't. And I think especially if you're a firstborn, 
sometimes it's difficult for parents to learn that transition. And so I encourage young couples to go, okay, we may need to set boundaries with mom and dad. So even though they may want us to come and stay with them for the entire week of our vacation and be, you know, all together in this small little cabin, we're not sure that's right for us. And so it's okay for us to go, guys, thank you so much. We really appreciate that. We're going to stay with you guys three days, and then we need to go from there. Uh, Even things with parenting, you know, parents can have a lot of good wisdom and advice for for your children, but sometimes we don't want to hear that, or sometimes we don't agree with that. And it's recognizing we have a right to be us, and it's okay. There doesn't need to be conflict with that. We just go, you know what, we're going to do it this way. Or that, that particular thing that you want, I just don't know that we're going we're gonna to do that. And being confident in that, that it's okay. We're okay to be who we are, and it's okay to set boundaries. And if you have a family without good boundaries, you may feel guilt with that. And it's like, okay, I feel guilt because this is how it's always been in my family. But it's really okay for me to be an adult and make decisions that are right for our little family and that will bring us peace. Old Testament and New Testament both had the scripture, seek peace and pursue it. And that's what I always looked for as I was raising my kids. What brings peace within my little home? What is the best and what feels right in a godly way among our home? And then if that means we don't get to go you know, spend eight days with the entire extended family in a house, it's okay. It doesn't bring peace to my, the people I'm responsible for. And certainly we can be respectful, give grace. You know, the challenge in this whole relationship is the parent's position doesn't really change. They've been parents. They're still parents. It's the kids that change. The kids go from being kids to now adults. And so oftentimes, it's up to the adult kids to learn how to start setting boundaries. And you can do it respectfully. You know, you can say, we love you, and thank you so much for this offer, and, um, but this is what we've decided to do. And you will have to deal with some, I mean, some parents are just masters at manipulation, and they don't even realize what they're doing. They know how to give guilt, little guilt messages and all those kind of things. You'll have to, you'll have to be able to deal with that and go, but this is right for us. We're not trying to hurt anybody. We love them, but this is best for us and and for our our family. Again, we can do it respectfully. And oftentimes you'll find that if you set those good boundaries, um, even if there's resistance initially, eventually you can, you're an adult, you can decide what you do. Eventually you'll find yourself wanting to even be around them a little bit more. If you go along with and, and, and allow yourself to be manipulated, you'll get bitter and resentful and you won't, you know, you'll be wanting to skip the next Thanksgiving with them. And I think everybody recognizing this is a grieving process for the parents. I mean, these people have been dependent on us for 18 to 20 years. And there's a grieving process that comes in a natural life stage. We want them to be adults. We want them to have their own lives. But this is my family. And now they're going out and and having their own lives. So there's a grieving process in this. But you know what? All of life is you let go of some things, and you, you have something new that happens. So it's recognizing your parents aren't doing this because they're mean or they're weird, or, or maybe they are. But, um, <laughs> but 
that they just miss having their group or they're trying to make that transition. Um, you know, one of the things we used to do when our kids were little, you've probably heard us say, is when they would mess up on something, we would go, you're acting like a five-year-old when they were five. And, and they'd go, I am a five-year-old. And we'd go, oh, that's why you act that way, to remind us that they're little. That's the stage that they're at. And so at times, I will find myself going, you're acting like an adult. <laughs> it's like, I'm 25, Mom. And it's like, okay, I guess I can accept that. Um, but it's recognizing this is a normal life stage, but it does have some pain involved with it for everybody. If everybody can give everybody grace in this, we, ad- we parents have to keep making this adjustment. My oldest daughter just bought a house, one of the really cute bungalows towards downtown, and, and she asked for us to come and help. And so I was there helping and so forth, and I found myself using language like, well, we should do this to the lawn. <laughs> and I realized I shouldn't be saying we. <laughs> this is not my house. Um, and so I said, what do you think about doing this to the lawn? I had to catch myself. It's just easy to do. We want to help and love them, but we have to learn how to disconnect and let them ask for those things. I'm going to interrupt because we've got a, a few more questions yeah. that are really great. Uh, Along these same lines of making that transition from childhood into adulthood, uh, this is a really interesting question, and this house must have been crazy growing up. Any thoughts on managing competition among adult siblings? This particular person uh, mentioned there are three sisters, 20 months apart, twins plus one. That's a challenge. Well, it goes back to we can't control other people. We can only deal with our own things and, and what, what we bring into the picture. It's really hard when you go into a competitive environment, especially when you say to yourself, I'm not going to be competitive. I'm not going to be. And then you get in there, and all of a sudden, this stuff starts rising up, and it's like, oh, yeah, well. Um, and it's really going into it saying, I don't have to compete with anybody. I am secure in Christ, and whether my parents set this system up where we were trying to get value by who could be the best or whatever, um, I don't have to buy into that system. I have said a lot of dysfunctional families have what I call a point system. It's like, oh, if she gets a really good job, she somehow gets more points than I do. Or if they get a nice house, according to mom and dad or the family system, they get more points than I do. And it's a weird thought process that's in a lot of families, but it's what causes that competition because I want to get more points. And for some of you, it may be like love points from parents or approval points from parents or whatever it is. And, and I tell clients when I work with them a lot, it's, it's like that show, Whose Line Is It Anyway? Have you seen that? Well, they always say, you got 5,000 points for that, but the points don't count. Well, I always say going into a family system like that or being with a family system like that, you have to go, okay, my sister just got 900 points because she got a really great house. But the points don't count. In God's eyes, we have unlimited points, and he's given them all to us, and he's given them all to my sister, and he's given them all to my brother. And so I don't have to get caught up in that point system because I have every point there is in God, and I can rest in that and have my security in that and let them have their games and love them and go, God bless them. That's a painful place to be, but I don't have to be there, and I don't want to be there. That's so good. And I think if you're a parent and you see this in your children that are competing, or if you're one of the siblings, 
and you see competition the other siblings, uh, recognizing that that desire to compete and that desire to win comes out of insecurity. It comes out of, I'm not quite okay. And the way I become okay is I outperform this one. And so it's either a performance thing or I need acceptance and validation from others. It all comes from a place of, of insecurity in the human soul. We all are way more insecure than we realize. And so the best way um, to help that is to begin to, is, is to really work at speaking life into each of those individuals, to, to encourage them in the strengths that they are, in those things that you see, those, those absolute clear qualities that, that you see in them, continue to nurture those, continue to speak life to those, and be able to identify them not, uh, identify them individually and speak to those qualities individually rather than go, well, you have great qualities too, you know. It's just, that just kind of feels like you're just trying to placate them for the moment. But if you can begin to identify what those qualities are, but this is what I see in you, and you're, um, you're so good at this, and continue to nourish um, your children in that, your adult children or siblings in that. I don't think you could ever possibly overdo that. And you are some, particularly if you're the parent, you are the most, one of the most powerful human voices in their life. And so don't minimize the power of your words and speaking life um, to each of them. I would also say, parents, don't minimize um, the importance of apologies. You know, sometimes I'll have parents go, I know, I was yelling at my kids when they were growing up, and I did this and this, and it was so wrong, um, but what do I do now? It, don't minimize the, the power of going back and saying, hey, guys, when we went through this phase, I think I was really a witch, and I just want to say I am so, so sorry for that, and if I could redo that in any way, I would do it, but I just want to ask your forgiveness. It's amazing the power that comes from that, even if that went on for 10 years in their lives. Um, people need to hear that. And as Brent was talking about, basically he was talking about speaking the blessing in people's lives. Everybody around us needs to, to have someone remind them of their good qualities and how much God loves them and how special they are. And so we cannot overpraise people, not fake flattery, but you know what? Brent, you are always so stable and so steady. That has been such a blessing in our family. I just really appreciate that. Those speak life to people, and they bring healing. Okay. That's good. This may be the last question we have time for. Okay. Um, but I think it's a great question. I think it's something we can all relate to. I know I'm supposed to forgive people, and I feel like I have. But what if I don't really feel like hanging out with them anymore? Well, this really brings up a really critical point, I believe, in human life that we get confused sometimes. Uh, forgiveness and trust are two totally different things. So many times I hear from people that are working on forgiving a person. They've talked about this story of hurt and, and where they've been let down or they've been harmed in some way by um, a relative or a sibling or a um, partner or friend even. And we talk about how do they forgive and not carry bitterness and resentment and how do I release the offense? And, and we go back into scripture and look at what Jesus' response to Peter was where Peter said, Lord, am I, how many times are we supposed to forgive? Once, twice, three times, 
seven times. I think Peter was thinking he was going to get kind of a great pat on the back because in the Jewish culture, you only had to forgive three times, and so he was going to double it and add one. And so look at me. Do I get my little merit badge here? Um, and, of course, we know Jesus' response was, no, 70 times seven in one setting, and the other one was 77 times. And, and we've come to understand that that doesn't mean on the 491st time, we don't have to forgive anymore. But the idea is that forgiveness is a process. It's something that we do constantly over and over and over again. And oftentimes, it's not that they've hurt us 490 times. It's that we remember it 490 times. So the idea of forgiveness is every time it comes back to my memory, how do I forgive them? And how do I choose to release that offense? But forgiveness is something that God empowers us to do regardless of the other person's behavior. It has nothing to do whether they've changed or not. And so we don't have to wait on the other person to say they're sorry. Now, it's easier to forgive people if they're sorry. But a lot of times they're not sorry. A lot of times they don't even get it. They have no idea they even hurt you or certainly don't even recognize they hurt you to that level. And so, so God has empowered us with this ability to stay free of bitterness and resentment in our life whether the other person changes or not. It's what we call a one-way street. You can forgive somebody even if they don't change. But trust is totally different than that. And I have a lot of people feel like that, gosh, once I feel like I've forgiven a person, that means I should want to be buddies with them again or I should want to hang out with them or be together all the time. I said, no, no, trust is different than that. Uh, the reason that you're not comfortable being with them is because they're not trustworthy. Trust is a two-way street. Trust requires change on that person's part and change for a long enough period of time until you feel like that you can trust them, that they have, in essence, earned trust. Trust is earned. We have to earn it. Some people you're going to be in life with, yes, you're going to need to forgive them, but because they don't ever change, they're not trustworthy. And so you're moving along in forgiveness, which is critical. But trust is stagnated back here because there's they've not changed at all. There's, there's no repentance of heart whatsoever. And so there's going to be some relationships that you're going to have like that, that I forgive them, but I don't trust them. And it actually, in some settings that I've seen, you would be a fool to hang out with them much because they're not trustworthy people and they're going to continue to harm you. And so you, it's appropriate to have some guards in your life. That's why we're not commanded to trust people. We are commanded because God knows it's imperative in our life to forgive but we're not commanded to trust because he knows we have nothing to do with other people's behavior. We cannot control that. You cannot determine whether another person is trustworthy or not. And so there's going to be some folks that we have to get comfortable with in our life that I have to stay clean and free in my heart of forgiveness so that I don't hold any bitterness or resentment. But I just decide not to hang out with them much. And sometimes those people are close to us. Sometimes those people are relatives. Sometimes those people turn into from people that you would like to visit a lot during the year to people that you see at Thanksgiving. And that's about it because otherwise you're putting yourself in, in harm's way. Mm -hmm. I thought you did great. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> what? <laughs> Nothing to do with Paul doing hand signals towards me. Okay. No, no I'm just kidding. <laughs> stop. <Yeah>. Stop. <laughs> okay. We should stop there. So it was good that we, we kind of ended on the idea of forgiveness as we prepare ourselves for communion. All relationships, um, 
really the health of all relationships in our life center around this table. This is, this is what has been, uh, in what has been provided to us through the table, this kind of grace, this kind of love and care and sacrifice. Um, he has loved us. He has forgiven us. Therefore, we pass that on to others. And so we have to be grace-filled. We have to be gifted with grace and gifted with the power uh, of the Spirit to really be able to have healthy relationships in our life. And so, so whatever maybe has come to your mind today, uh, what relationships might have popped up in some of these examples, I want you to just kind of hold that in your heart right now. We're just going to pray for you. And then we're going to come and receive the table. We're going to trust that something um, of the power of God, a greater level of the power of God is available for us, that heaven meets earth, this heaven meets earth experience that we're going to encounter right now, um, that something's going to come alive in us, that we aren't mustering up ourselves. That's the wonderful thing about God is that he doesn't expect that we just do all this by our own willpower but it's by his gift of grace in our life and his power and his strength that we have the ability to love it all, the ability to forgive it all, the ability to sacrifice it all. So let's pray. Lord, once again, we come to you with those relationships that have come to mind during this discussion, whether it's a close loved one, that um, there's something that's broken there, or it might be a neighbor that we've always just chosen to just drive into the garage and never even talk to. Or it might be that person at work that we are struggling with or a roommate that we've just limited the relationship. And so we trust that you, by the power of your spirit, we welcome your spirit into our hearts right now. Lord, the power of your spirit to be able to challenge us, to heal us, to give us the ability to give, the ability to love, the ability to forgive, the ability to care for others. And we also pray that you would speak to our hearts about a step, one simple step that we might take towards another. It might be somebody in this service. It might be somebody in our own church family or a small group or maybe a phone call we need to make this afternoon to somebody across the world Whatever that is, God, we trust your Spirit's work in us. Help us to hear. Help us to respond now. And help us to trust you. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. If you'd stand. Thanks for listening to this message from Sanctuary Church. If you're in the Tulsa area, we invite you to attend one of our weekend services at 5 p.m. on Saturday, 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. on Sundays. And if you would like more information on who we are and what we're about here at Sanctuary or to give online, please visit our website at SanctuaryTulsa.com or you can download our mobile app from the App Store or Google Play. We hope you'll join us again next time. Have a great week.